Jason Flanagan is Design Director of leading award-winning London architects Flanagan and Lawrence, where he leads teams on diverse projects including performance art centres, acoustic structural and urban master plans including that of Wembley, hotels, spas, residential projects and commercial offices. Jason has a special interest in acoustics and sound, and one of his most innovative projects to date is Soundforms, the first ever mobile acoustic shell with the capacity for a full orchestra. Soundform was used as the official bandstand in the Olympic Park during 2012 Olympics. Jason's work is also on site in the iconic Riverside Studios in London, providing highly flexible state-of-the-art digital art centres. He was also the director responsible for the conversion of Shepherd's Bush Pavilion into an award-winning hotel. Jason is changing the way we look, feel and listen to structures in London and beyond. I'm thrilled to welcome on board IQ Boxing as the very first sponsor of Your London Legacy podcast. Run by the inspirational head coach, Xavier Miller, IQ Boxing Club in Neasden, Northwest London, is one big close-knit family where the boxers and coaches have excellent working relationships and every boxer supports each other on their individual journey. Every young boxer is given individual time so that they can flourish as a boxer, but more importantly, as a person of character. Regular classes are held for juniors and amateurs, and there are also keep fit boxer-sized classes. IQ Boxing is built on the pillars of respect, hard work and dedication, and with its supportive trustees, grows from strength to strength. You can find out more about the London legacy IQ Boxing are creating by following them on Instagram at IQXavierMiller or www.iqboxing.co.uk. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Right, well, I'm here today with Jason Flanagan. Hello. Welcome, Jason, to Your London Legacy. Thank you for uh, inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. And Jason is the design director. I hope I've got this correct. I always ask the guests to make sure I've got this absolutely correct right at the start. The d design director of Flanagan Lawrence. That is correct. That is what I am. A firm of architects. Yep. You call yourself a special type of firm of architects? You niche down into a particular area or... Uh, we we do we we do have specialisms generally like like many architects we do quite a lot of things okay. we'll we'll design all sorts of buildings from everything from a master plan to the buildings itself their interiors bits of furniture we're a jack of all trades so we'll come down and talk about some of the projects some of the wonderful projects you've yeah. been have worked on and are presently working on both yep. within London. We'll focus predominantly on London, I guess, because this is a London-based podcast, but also some of the projects perhaps that are, interestingly, some mobile units, buildings that yeah, we'll definitely. talk about perhaps yeah. um, with an acoustic flavor. You know, we'll talk a little bit about your history and your interest in buildings and acoustics as well, because it's uh, a fascinating topic. But to start off, we're in, in your offices, in your building, which is in... I think we said it's Royal Oak, but it's, Royal Oak doesn't actually exist as a place apart from an underground station. We're in we're in Bayswater, which we're is in, Bayswater. We're next door to Royal Oak Tube Station, yeah. and we're in what once was the ticket printing works for Paddington Station, which right. is lovely building, uh, one of the earliest concrete frames, and it quite literally is at the end of Platform One of Paddington yes. Station. And I think you can pretty much see it from the window where we're where yeah. we're sitting. And that's where our studio is. Fantastic. Well, I think, say, studio is probably doing it a disservice. It's a <laughs> bit more than just a studio. It's a wonderful, wonderful building. Did, um, did you work out what the age was, the age of the no, building? I'm no, I'm still thinking. <laughs> Concrete structure. Concrete structure. So we're sitting in one of the uh, the meeting rooms, nice, bright, 
room, glass partitions here. A bit warm, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe it's me mm. with my cardigan on. But it's the weather. But it's it's, it's got a nice reverberance to it. It is. <laughs> yes, indeed. So you're one of the two, I think, two directors of this practice. That's right. There's myself and David Lawrence. David Lawrence. And we uh, we run the practice. And there's there's about forty five people here uh-huh. working the practice. Still beavering away downstairs when I arrived yeah. earlier this evening. And interior designers too. So Excellent. So you're obviously running a very successful practice here. You're involved in some very significant uh, projects. When do you think, casting your mind back, when do you think you first became interested in building and design and architecture? Or can you remember a specific time in your life or your, even your childhood perhaps? It really goes back to when I was... I was doing some research into a project. I think it was back in what we used to call O levels day. No, I, I, I recall many people now, won't recall GCSEs, I did. Yeah. but it was that. And I was, I think the, the project we've been given was something to do with building a model. And I started to get interested in houses and particularly, you know, quite famous houses, amazing houses by Frank Lloyd Wright and Mies van der Rohe. And that really switched me on to mm. to architecture so it was going to the library and digging out books and trying to build little models of falling water by frank lloyd wright which is not an easy thing to do no. i wasn't, didn't didn't come out particularly well but then um decided to go and study architecture and that was how i came to london i came to, to london to study here at the university so of, you weren't born brought up in london no, no so i came down in the mid 80s to uh-huh. to the bartlett at university college london and then did my first degree, worked, and then went to the Royal College of Art, came out and then started working for Foster and Partners. Uh-huh. So that's and, a uh, big, big name in architecture, yeah, obviously. which is you know, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Sure. Great education. So what do you think it was as a kid that sort of grabbed your interest in building and structure? Kind of later on, my, my father was an electrical engineer, but I think, I actually think he would have been a great architect he's got a very spatial brain very good three-dimensionally very good at making things and i think there are you know there are strands of that 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 come through he was always making something Mm. so i think that's that is part of it but it's it's partly to do with a kind of an appreciation buildings but also just everything being understanding the three dimensions and how things are put together Mm. from materiality to how things work as well. So you chose architecture, say, over, I don't know, being a surveyor perhaps or I a structural engineer? principally because I was interested in, in partly the mixture of the, the technical side and the creative side. I mean, the alternative would have been to go and study art, but I, I don't think I'd, that would have quite worked <laughs> in quite the same way. Well, it's a form of art, isn't it, obviously? Very much yeah. so, yeah, very yeah. much. And what is interesting is that you've now sort of combined not just art, but also people consider art and architecture as, as a structure, but you've got an audible element to what you do here as well. Yeah, well, one of the things that became very interesting to me during the, the degree I did at the Bartlett was was sound and working on projects with acoustics. One of the, the later projects that we did, I think it was in our third year, was the first time I got the opportunity to design a theatre for a drama school on the on the South Bank on the Cut, near um, just down the road from the, from the old Vic, mm-hmm. and the young Vic was was the site that was chosen. And we also had the ability to go in and kind of do experiments. They had a anechoic chamber, which is a remarkable space if you ever get the opportunity to to, to go inside mm-hmm. one, which is a completely 
reverberance-free space. So when you go into these and you're, you're on your own, they are so silent that all you can hear is the inner workings of your own body. You know, you can kind of hear, you know, the blood pumping around you. Oh, wow. You. So that can be a little bit spooky, oh, but yeah. at the same time, it is quite a remarkable experience to be completely devoid of any echo, any reverberance from the space around you. So the room we're in now, uh, it's got quite hard surfaces, glass, plaster, concrete, a little bit of carpet on the floor. But you can sense the room around us. Well, mm -hmm. even now while we're speaking, you can, you can sense that the room is, is responding to yeah. us. And then that carried on with my second degree and started looking at a recording studio. And then I was very fortunate in my career at Foster's that we, uh, we were successful and we won the competition to design the Sage in Gateshead, which is a series of concert halls, rehearsal spaces, and a music school. So that fascination with designing for sound was able to then really find form. So that gave me a great grounding in the whole process of how you go about understanding sound and designing for it at a, a very refined level. Mm. And that's what we've been able to carry on with, with here at Flanagan Lawrence, and particularly with the work that we've done outside of London in terms of concert hall spaces. But in, in London, I think probably the most interesting and innovative piece of work that we did was a mobile acoustic performance shell, which was actually used as the bandstand for the Olympics and the Paralympics uh -huh. back in 2012. And that, that was a fascinating process because it, it didn't really kind of start in the normal way that projects do where somebody gets in touch and say, I want this, I want that this is the project that I want. It actually emerged out of a conversation with a very interesting guy, a conductor called Mark Stevenson, who had a small traveling orchestra that he would kind of go to spaces around London and he would set up and he would play in these spaces. And they were often um, in acoustically totally inappropriate spaces. So like Atria or very kind of open spaces and shopping centers where the acoustic response that he was getting from the space really wasn't helping him and his small orchestra perform in these spaces. So what he was looking for was initially a structure that would give him and the performers support so they could hear each other and play better, play in, in ensemble effectively, um, and then be able to project that sound out to the audience. Mm. But as the conversation developed and we started looking at that, we realized that there was actually a really interesting possibility, which is that when orchestras get to play outdoors, they often play, like most other people do when they're playing outdoors, under fabric, temporary structures. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems with those is that they're largely acoustically transparent to the majority of sound frequencies. They just pass through. You get the high frequencies reflected back. So again, in, in performers who are used to playing in very well designed and defined acoustic spaces on a concert platform find themselves playing in completely inappropriate conditions. Sure. So the idea emerged that we would try and combine the idea of a lightweight traveling fabric structure but with the acoustic design of the, of the, of the working end of a concert hall and the, the kind of acoustic reflectors that you get around that, which need a certain degree of mass to be reflective, so it was a question of how we could come up with a strategy for deploying these two ideas together. And that gave rise to this 
project to design a mobile acoustic performance show, which we then called Soundforms. And as we were developing this idea, we realized nobody had done anything like this uh -huh. before. So just to stop you there for a second. Mm. So, for example, we used to go to Kenwood when yep. they had open-air concerts. They've got a beautiful structure. Which I, is a, I believe it's concrete. I don't even know if it's still there anymore because we walked... Yeah, we it was walked the other there. side of the pond. It's the other side of the pond. Down the we bottom were walking of the down there a few weeks ago, and I don't recall... Because I know there were some complaints several years ago from local residents about sound traveling to them and affecting them, yeah. and yeah. some of the local got up in arms. But the sound... From the other, because that sound has got to travel from a full You've orchestra to across the pond yeah. to the audience, you know, hundreds of meters away. And a lot of the sound got lost, quite quite frankly. It wasn't great, yeah. the sound. Well, the Soundform Shell is doing exactly the same thing, but but it's also creating an onstage acoustic for the performers so they can uh -huh. hear each other. And then the intention is that it projects the sound out to the audience mm. as well. And we developed initial designs and realized that we actually had something quite unique, sufficiently unique that we were able to patent it. And what the patent gave us was the ability to then fundraise against the intellectual property right that mm -hmm. the patent gave us. So we were able to set up a company called Soundforms, fundraise. And the fundraising was to get money together in order that we could build a prototype, in order that we could test the idea one-to-one -one with real live musicians in a live environment. Um, so we fundraised, we developed the design with Arab Acoustics, uh, with some great engineers, and it was built by a company called ES Global. And we built it initially on their yard, which was down opposite where the O2 is now, on the other side of the, of the River Thames mm -hmm. in, in Silvertown, and tested it one freezing cold March night <laughs> with the planes coming over to, to, to City Airport. Uh -huh. And um, I remember there was, a, there was a certain amount of nervousness about whether it was going to work because it's one of the issues with acoustics is however much proof you have in terms of the mathematics and the computer modeling, there's, that there's still a certain nervousness around, around the subject. We were very confident and so was the, so was the acoustician. But nevertheless, the, the people who were setting up for the gig had mic'd the whole thing up and we're ready to amplify the whole event because there were going to be you know, several hundred people turning up. We said, no, 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 no. We literally have to take all of that down. This has got to be a completely live, natural acoustic performance. So uh -huh. we, we took it all away. And we got the, the, the string section from the London Philharmonic to come along, and they played, and it was beautiful. So this band who came along, you just, you just told them to, to pack up and... No, it was, this was the people who were actually kind of staging the event. Because what we did was we had, we decided we wanted to test it for a range of different types of performance. I was so going to say, had, because you've got different types of music. Obviously, you've yeah. got classical and electrical and So acoustic. we had solo piano. We had a jazz saxophonist. We had um, the, the, the string section. So we had about a dozen, um, dozen people on stage yeah. with their stringed instruments. And then we also had some amplified music, which... Obviously, you need electricity for, mm -hmm. but um, and it worked beautifully. So it created the the kind of the clarity that we wanted on stage, so the musicians could hear each other. But what was really impressive was the fact that you could clearly hear not only the sound, but the kind of distances that we were predicting. And we we had probably about four or five hundred people that first night. But also, there was a distinct cutoff when you walked out of. The, the sphere of influence that the, the shell was projecting into, mm. which is great because we didn't want the Kenwood problem. We didn't want the sound leaking out in directions 
other than where we wanted it to be mm. projected to. And the organizers of the Olympics came to the, the test event, which was, which was great. And they said that they were looking for something not unlike this for, for the Olympics. So we went through a process where the, 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 the structure was, was, was vetted and it was then used as the, the bandstand for, for the Olympics and the within, Paralympics. Within the park then? Within the park. So Fantastic. there was a little beautiful sunken garden um, down near the, the velodrome. And um, the structure was re-erected because it's mobile. And it's, it's quite an interesting structure in itself. The, the acoustics are all created by a very simple series of curved plywood panels, which gives them a rigidity and a, and a strength to, to reflect the sound waves back. But the structure itself, because it has to be mobile, is incredibly lightweight. So it's an aluminium frame. And the whole thing is pivoted around a series of joints. That, so it lifts up like a pram lid and it drags up a fabric roof mm -hmm. that wraps around the whole structure. It's like, a, it's like a pod. It's like a shell. And then that structure is inflated to, to keep it rigid so that the whole structure is kept inflated by a small kind of little box the size of a small fridge which is located under the stage wow. with a little a tiny little pump uh -huh. that just every now and again keeps the keeps the structure taut by inflating it and that is resilient and resistant against sort of typical weather conditions we get in the uk yeah absolutely so i mean that particular structure was designed to withstand wind speeds up to i think it was about 25 meters per second so quite quite speedy but the intention is that this is a, the, the kind of structure that is deployed. So if you ever need to take it down, it's it can be taken mm. down also very quickly. So is there just one at the moment of its kind? Well, there, is, there is the one, which was the original one, but we were then very fortunate that following that structure's success acoustically and also in terms of the way it, it looked and performers enjoying using the structure, the San Diego Symphony Orchestra heard about it and they have commissioned a full-size symphony orchestra version of the shell which is going to be a permanent structure located in in the harbor out in san diego Wonderful. as part of a an overall master plan that's been designed by tucker sadler architects so there's been a collaboration between tucker sadler and Soundforms with us as Soundforms architects to develop the design for a very large version. So what we designed was what we call kind of the small version mm -hmm. for quartets and maybe up to a dozen, 15 players. And this can accommodate a full symphony orchestra. Full, full orchestra. Choir. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. For performances in, in the harbor there, which would be absolutely stunning. Amazing. So where do you store the present one and how do you transport that around? It fits into a couple of shipping containers. Uh -huh. So it's, it, it packs down quite tight. And currently, I believe it's in Nottingham. <laughs> it, it, what in a container in a or being, you're being used in a pair of no in a pair of containers in okay nothing. so if anyone wants to use it i mean do That's they just right. they have to get in touch with you presumably they want to absolutely yeah or contact yeah. soundforms direct uh, yeah of which you are but then it the, the idea is then translated into other more permanent forms so it gave rise to the design for an acoustic shell that is on the beach uh in littlehampton uh-huh which is a similar idea, but in, done in concrete. And we're doing something very similar as well. Um, so is that Poland. like um, a modern-day permanent bandstand? It is. It's a contemporary interpretation of the bandstand. Uh -huh. the, the local community were desperate to 
get a bandstand back. They uh-huh. lost their bandstand when it was demolished in the 1960s and, and, and wanted to, to get their bandstand back. Mm-hmm. And it does work beautifully for, for the local brass bands in particular. And it also forms a great wind shelter, yes. which you know is one of the problems with listening to anything when you're on the beach. And there are a pair of shells, so one you can also sit and listen to the sound of the sea, which is uh, wonderful. Quite being shaped in a shell, so it obviously yeah. fits in beautifully yeah. with the uh, yeah. surrounding surroundings as well. So that first project, which you know was developed for a London problem of playing in spaces that aren't necessarily designed for acoustics gave rise to a project that solved a slightly different problem but it then kind of came full circle for us in terms of thinking about that particular problem we were we were working on a a hotel in shepherd's bush Mm -hmm. um, for a developer called dorset and this was on the the west end of the green in shepherd's bush yeah i know it uh, within a beautiful late 1920s cinema which when it was originally built was the biggest cinema in in in, in europe it was, it was the biggest cinema outside of the states it was about 2700 seats which fell into disrepair it got uh, badly damaged in um a, a bomb attack during the second world war yeah. uh, which took out most of the of the interior and it kind of declined over the years it functioned quite well as a bingo hall for a while and then started to fall upon hard times and people were starting to think about well what can we do to reinvigorate the building and it was quite difficult to think of things that you could do with a structure like that because the entire cinema structure itself was solid brick and solid concrete so light couldn't get through and it had a beautiful still does have a beautiful brick facade based on triumphal Roman arches. And the idea of converting it into a hotel came about. Um, and that's what we've done. We've converted it into a 300-bed hotel and replaced the facade of the cinema itself with a very similar form, but created out of glass and terracotta baguettes. But, but the link to the acoustic strategy is, it, is the point I wanted to make, which is that the form of the hotel is such that there are rooms that look out around the edge of the building, but there are also rooms that look back into a central atrium. And that atrium was going to have the same problems that Mark Stevenson was facing with his London Music Orchestra, which is kind of a, a problem with over-reverberance. So what we decided to do was to wrap a, a series of strips around each of the floor levels that would be filled with acoustic absorption and also create them in such a way that they form panels that can be backlit. And so when you go to the atrium in Shepherd's Bush Hotel, you get this wonderful sense of, of, of calmness. You're in a very, very tall, almost cathedral-like atrium space, which has got this kind of beautiful golden color. It's, it's incredibly warm visually and, and acoustically, but it's the kind of space where you don't need to raise your voice to have a conversation and you can fill the whole people with fill the whole space with people because the, the the bar for the hotel is at the base and not only do you not hear that within the bedrooms but also you can just have a very kind of gentle conversation which just makes everybody just feel that a little bit calmer that sounds wonderful and it's one of those things that the impact that acoustics can have on how we feel in the space is hugely important. Absolutely, because Shepherd's Bush, as anyone who, who knows the, the area, is a, is a madly hectic It's one of the area. noisiest, most Noise. polluted streets. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's in the whole of London. I it's mean, quite London. a challenging space. Yeah. But, 
but it's like a, a little oasis of calm within the uh, within the atrium itself. Well, you've sold it to me. <laughs> Not the building, but a visit, of course. Wonderful. Pop in for tea. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've you know, go to Shepherd's Bush from time to time. Yeah, There was the old Shepherd's Bush Pavilion, I think, building, wasn't it? It was the, yeah, pavilion, the pavilion, yeah. Called. It went through various names over the yeah. over the years. So was the facade um, a protected yes. part of the building or yeah. where the arches were and the brickwork at the front? The whole of the facade was, was grade two listed. Not much of the of the interior remained, but we went through quite a process, a fascinating process of trying to find as much as we could about the history of the interior. In particular, a lot of the, a lot of the features that you find in the foyer now are, are a memory, an echo of mm. some of the features that existed in the original cinema foyer. So there was a, as you walked in, just as you went to the box office in the original building, there was a circular disc on the floor that marked the center of the foyer. And we've remarked that out in the same position that it was. But also above you, this kind of beautiful circular lantern. Mm. And that kind of addresses both the kind of the orientation to the restaurant and the box office. I think it's so important reception. to do your, your due diligence on the history yeah. and the research of the building and to keep it to keep that flavor mm. although you're modernizing in terms of structure well it is a slightly different flavor because it's uh, the, the original building there was a kind of a, a a slight split between what was happening outside and what was happening inside and i think where we've ended up is is picking up on certain themes that emerged and it, it's developed its own new language but nevertheless it it, it feels mm. sympathetic too yeah. so how much research do you do on the history of, of, a, of a site before you you do as much as Refurbit. you possibly can. Yeah. It's, you know, it's one of the great processes that we go through. One of the most enjoyable parts of any project is, so. that, yeah. is that early part of the design where you actually don't know what it is you're doing, where you're still searching. Yes. At that moment, everything is possible. And then you start to refine and you work through. But the, the history of self can generate ideas. Always. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, architecture is a, it's an interesting profession and process because I mean, like many things, I guess, we actually work best when we have quite tough constraints. It's actually having things that constrain us that actually give us edges and things to kind of bounce off in terms mm. of the ideas. It's, it, it's what sparks the different strategies. That's interesting. Talking of doing research and history and, and including historical features or mm. flavors within a new structure i'm a big tottenham hotspur fan so you'll probably be familiar with the or aware of if nothing else the uh the, the new development the new football ground yep that white heart lane yep. still currently called the white heart lane stadium i think until the until they sponsor the name somewhere <laughs> becomes the emirates or something horrible i haven't been there at the new stadium. are you a football, football fan? i'm a chelsea so, fan chelsea, well yeah okay well <laughs> i'm sure i'll pass it across next season not not this year but that apart from being well over budget and well well behind schedule, it is a wonderful, uh, because I'm a season ticket holder uh, for my sins, um, because they're very expensive, Daniel Levy, <laughs> if you're listening. But when you go in, as a Spurs fan who's been there with my father or my grandfather before him, to see all the lovely touches that they've used to yeah. bring over White yeah. Hart Lane into the current building is just wonderful, from using some of the aggregate from the old site, which they've got on the new floor, and some of the old pictures and mm. uh, wall art and stuff is is really lovely. But there's an interesting thing which I'm sure you'll be interested in, which is the the acoustic design of the uh, yep. the stadium as well. Because one of the things they always said was they wanted to make sure that 
it got you got the sound wasn't lost, and obviously they built this seventeen and a half thousand seater stand, behind, you know, for the home fans behind the goal, and it is just unbelievable. Yeah, I, I've not heard anything like that before, and I don't know. It's been designed. Were you involved in the design of it before I no, shoot no, my mouth off? No. <laughs> it, no. it, it is wonderful, um, yep. and I don't know how they've done it, but it does retain the sound in in the bowl somehow. Well, it was the same challenge at Wembley was to to retain the Wembley roar. Yeah, I don't think they did that quite as well because having been there for a season, it's not quite the same same effect. I mean, there's other there's other things which are beneficial in terms of being much closer to the pitch than you are at Wembley, um, and, and the view and sight lines are, are really good. Uh, the food's not bad, but you have to queue. But from an acoustic point of view, very good indeed. Really, really impressed with it. Gives you that intensity of experience. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been lucky because some of the games we've been to have actually meant something. Maybe, <laughs> maybe next season they won't mean so much and the ground will be empty. Hmm. But um, it's interesting that acoustics does play such a vital role in buildings, whether it's a football stadium or an auditorium or, or even a hotel when you can talk quietly. And, and public spaces. Yeah. We've recently completed uh, a couple of buildings in Wembley, not far away from the stadium. Yeah, I'm familiar with Wembley. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. So you'll be familiar with going up and down Olympic Way Indeed. and, you know, the amount of kind of noise and hustle and bustle uh -huh. that's created when you've got the best part of, you know, 70, 80,000 people going to a match. Well, within, you know, hearing distance of that, we've created uh, uh, three apartment buildings. But in between two of them is a new square called Elvin Square Gardens, which is like a little oasis of calm. And it's interesting that because it's pretty much surrounded at the moment, it's surrounded at the moment on three sides and eventually it will have a fourth side. And the size of the square is about an acre. So it's like a typical urban London mm -hmm. square. But you can find yourself within that space. And because there's not much traffic actually moves through that space, you just hear little glimpses of what's happening around you. So it really kind of makes you feel like you've, you've stepped away from, from the bustle of the city for a moment. And I think that the, there's, a, there's a lot of work going on in what's called soundscaping um, within academia generally and also within acoustic practice and design practice. And I think it's something that we're all going to start to think a lot more of because, I mean, it's interesting if you listen to what's happening outside the window here, we've got bits of railway noise and traffic noise and the odd siren, but having the ability to retreat from that noise and control your environment is, is hugely important. It's crucial. And in a city or, or such as London or other cities or any built up sort of conurbations, Stress levels, as we all know, are going through the roof mm. and it's having an impact on people's well-being and their mental health. Yeah. And reasserting, if you like, nature and getting back to nature and yeah. spaces nature. that are quiet and the sounds of nature mm. are so crucial. Yeah. So even having a little oasis within, if anyone's been to Wembley recently, they'll see the huge amount of building work that's going on there. Well, I mean, one of the, the, the next pieces that will be built... We've been working on the master plan for the for the eastern side of of the site where the old coaching car park used to be, mm -hmm. which is going to be replaced by a new park. There's going to be lots of apartments built around that, but that will have, again, that sense of calm, that retreat from the city, a place where you can go and and really relax. But at the same time, because it's Wembley, it's going to be created with you know a, a, a good area of green lawn, so you can also kind of have a kickabout. So. It can be a bit noisy when it wants to be, but also very quiet. And I think having those different kinds of spaces in the city 
and thinking about how they sound is as important as, as how they look. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds good. I look forward to that being... When, when is that due for completion? Is that still well, on the... Well, the first part is on site now. So if you, if you wander up, you can actually see that the buildings are going up around us and the last part of the puzzle will be the, the creation of the, of the landscape. Excellent. We'll have to nip down there and have a look. Talking of historic buildings and changing them for the and embracing their past as well as taking them into contemporary setting, talk to us a little bit about the work you're doing at Riverside Studios, which is obviously a very yeah. famous building and landmark and place of theatrical importance in London. Yeah, well, what we're doing is we're working on the interiors within the new Riverside Studios. Um, so the old studios were were taken down they really had kind of reached the end of their their life they were pretty much holding the whole thing together with gaffer tape they were there was something very interesting about the spaces because they were so i mean literally quite leaky in terms of air and rain they had a again they had a certain acoustic signature in terms of the fact that they were you know, there was a certain level of absorption to them so what we're doing is we are working with riverside and we're recreating the three studios and the cinema there and a new foyer, but unlike the old foyer, which faced out to, to Chris Broad, the whole building is going to be reorientated so it faces out to the river. Towards the river, wonderful. So the, the foyer will look back towards Hammersmith Bridge and look out over the river, and that's on site now. Yeah. So uh, It looks magnificent. I, w I, I did have a quick look at the... We, we weren't involved in the, in the actual architecture of the building itself. We've, um, it's all of the apartments above. Well, bye different architects so we're literally working on the on the interiors of the of the studios for riverside which sit at the base of the building mm. because for those of you who aren't aware i mean the riverside studios used to house shows such as hancock's half hour and doctor who and blue That's peter right. and those, those sort of programs and then yeah. i think there was a period when it i don't know did it fall into disuse or disrepair or just no it I think carried the BBC on took BBC it, used it for a while, and it, yeah. in its original use, the building was it, it was a series of warehouses, and they used to manufacture ductwork. That's right, yeah. In its in its first incarnation, so that kind of slightly industrial feel that the building has had, we're we're, we're retaining that that feel to to the internal architecture. Mm -hmm. And then the Apprentice, I think, will can go back there afterwards. That's right, <laughs> because I think they used to film the uh, "You're Fired." Yeah program there and i think you're also connecting up the building to is it the, what's the bridge there is it hammersmith bridge is the nearest it's, bridge you, you can walk along the walk along the, the riverside on the footpath like, yeah. towards towards hammersmith bridge yeah. from there yeah which of course is where the daleks invaded earth uh, absolutely absolutely we all know that <laughs> <laughs> and when's that planned for completion how's that That'll coming be, on um well it's on site now so so watch this space fantastic <laughs> what other projects you're working on that are sort of acoustically orientated specifically or london-based well less so london-based i mean riverside studios is is the main one yeah. but this line of work takes you to all sorts of interesting places mm. so we are working on a an outdoor amphitheater a three thousand person amphitheater in poland in stettin oh, wow which is um that's due on site next year uh-huh uh, we're working up at the University of St. Andrews uh, at the Laidlaw Music Center, uh, which is a building for both the university and the local community. And we're doing a, an auditorium for the Sunderland Culture Trust, 
which is about to start on site in the next month or so. so you're keeping busy. Very busy. You're not, you're not without work then. <laughs> no, <laughs> so even more appreciative of you taking some time out then. So what, what, what for you gives you the most pleasure in what you do? Is it, is it completion when the keys are handed over? Is, you know, is it seeing your designs come to fruition? Most pleasure. Um, the interesting thing about architecture is these these projects take so long so you you, you find pleasure along the way uh-huh. so at every phase that there is always pleasure you know realizing that the idea the diagram for the building works is yes. always a fantastic moment and then when you visualize it and everybody gets excited about the way the building looks that's what about the moment when fabulous the, when it doesn't quite work in the then you <laughs> then you keep working and yeah. uh, architecture is a hugely collaborative process so you know we and the engineers and the client will all work together to to solve problems but one of the most interesting things that can happen with a building especially given the work we we do with acoustics is when you can listen to a building before you've built it so it's the same experience as a computer visualization so you can get these quite photorealistic images but literally now there are sound labs that our acoustics consultants like Arab Acoustics have where you can go and listen to your building before it's been built and you can listen to it with the kind of acoustic that you've designed the space That's to spooky have. before it's been spooky, built. Spooky but wonderful <laughs> because then you can also tune it. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't be Which surprised when you do all these 3D sort of virtual walkthroughs and it's the same so you're experience. actually walking through it before you've You can walk it through it but you can also before. listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, you know, there was a moment at the end of we, we, we built a hall in Cardiff, the Doris Doutzke Hall for the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. And we were able to, to listen to the room. That was the first room I was able to listen to before we'd actually built it, which was, that was a, an amazing moment. And then when you see the, the final building finished, that's always fantastic. But they often take a, a while to kind of grow into sure. buildings and, you know, th- 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 as clients learn how to, how to use them. It must be wonderful seeing your plans come in, come to yeah. fruition, come to reality. Yeah. It must yeah. be a wonderful feeling for you and, and the whole team. And the team, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, there's, there's How do you celebrate? Mass ownership. Do you have a big big party at the end? <laughs> there's usually a party yeah. of some sort. Fantastic. Or a series of them. <laughs> Ongoing. What or events. Projects? I mean, the, the, the great thing about the acoustic projects is you, you have performances. You get front row seats for all the, or, all the events. Well, that's the interesting thing. Where should you sit? So, for example, the concert hall we designed in Cardiff, and it's the same with most recital halls and concert halls. You don't want to sit too close to the stage because then you only get the direct sound of the Uh orchestra. You want to sit a little bit further back so you get a blended sound from the room. Okay. So... I need some advice from you then because tomorrow night we've got tickets to go to see Vivaldi's Four Seasons at St. Martin's in the Field. Okay. A venue I've never been to before. About two, for, two thirds of the way back. Two thirds of the way back. Perfect. <laughs> I think we're in row Q, so that's, that should cover it. <laughs> How do you see architecture and, and building form going forward, taking shape going forward? What are the what are the new trends and developments you think we need to look at? I think the thing that's had the most impact recently. I mean, that there have been two things. On the one hand, you've got the impact of the computer and everything that that can do for us. Mm doing more with less, but also the levels of, of complexity it can introduce into design processes, but also at the same time, it can make things much simpler in terms of repetition. But actually, one of the things that's had the biggest impact recently is the whole issue of, of, of cost and 
the recession and then Brexit and the impact of having Brexit. to do much more with less. Yeah. So frugality in a way. And that's that's no bad thing to Well that goes back to your issue of constraint, I suppose. Constraints are no bad thing. Yeah. So how you can work with a tight budget and still achieve a building that's elegant, beautiful, will last for a long time. Mm. That's that's a fascinating challenge. Yeah. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you. I've learned an awful lot uh, about architecture and what do you call it? Audio? What was the well, the, the, term for? the mobile acoustic performance shell company sound forms. But we also do that. There's a there's a third thing that we we do. Um, myself, um, an acoustician colleague from Araby, Ian, Ian Knowles, and a colleague from here, Paul Babister, We create sound art installations. We create temporary sound art pieces in spaces almost always in London, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, we've done one in Nottingham and one in Helsinki, but they tend to be uh, London-based spaces, which are site-specific responses to the architecture of the room. We get the room to create the sound. And is there one project on the go presently or one? There is, th there's one that we're thinking about, but there's nothing you can go and listen to right okay. at this, right at this right. moment. Well, but, be sure uh, to tell us as soon as right. that's... <laughs> Check out the AudioSense website. We will, we will indeed, okay. Well, we're at that time of the uh, conversation with my guest today, Jason Flanagan, where I'm going to ask Jason to tell us one or two places that Jason loves, recommends, maybe secret places that we're not totally familiar with. Um, I've got a feeling one of them might be acoustic related. So <laughs> what, what do you suggest, Jason? Well, thinking ac acoustically for a second, um, one of the great places in, in London and maybe it's not that well known as a, as a great place to actually go and listen to, to music is Fairfield Halls in Croydon, mm -hmm. which has got probably the, the, the best acoustic for listening to symphonic music. And in wh the why is that? Is obviously the design, but why was that designed differently from other? It was interesting. I mean, it was, it was designed by the same um, acoustician who designed the Royal Festival Hall. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges the Royal Festival Hall has is it's actually too big. Right. Um, if you compare it with a lot of the, 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 the truly great concert halls, symphonic concert halls around the world, they tend to be 2,000 seats or less. So there's, there's a question of occupation and mm. size, but very much what, what they learned was about the, the, the proportions and the geometry and the arrangement of the room, and Fairfield Halls does that okay. very well. Perfect. And your second place, I believe you've got another well, one too. Well, even the second place has got a has got a relationship with sound and listening, which is if you go to the Thames foreshore at low tide, and if you do, be very careful to check the tide timetables. It, it's an incredibly peaceful place to be within the city because suddenly you're you're, you're dropped down from from street level, which is above you, which cuts out a lot of the the, the noise of crowds and traffic and it's an incredibly peaceful place to kind of wander along the foreshore you still can see the city but it sounds entirely different it's uh, it's a remarkable place mm. well that's certainly a novel place i mean we've spoken about uh, on the show before um, mudlarking more than one character in fact jason sandy who put me in touch with you is uh, one of our big mudlarkers so just to go down onto the foreshore and just spend some time some mm. quiet time listening mm. and looking yeah. is, is a wonderful experience yeah. even yeah. on the kind of the the, the beach-like spaces on on the south bank near the tate yeah. it's um it's really beautiful great 
Well, again, thank you very much for your time because I know you're a busy man uh, with all these projects on the go. Keep up the great work. Where can people find out more about you and what you do and what your company's up to? Uh, the Flanagan Lawrence website is yeah. the that's the best place. So what's that? www.flanaganlawrence.com and they want to get in touch with you they can find all the contact details on there absolutely yeah. any social media for you at all you don't go it you're not in there that. is there's instagram and yeah tweeting and tweeting all sorts of things all that sort of stuff okay perfect jason thank you very much again look forward to stepping inside one of your buildings or listening to some of the uh, the audio that comes from them brilliant thank, thank you. you every week here at your london legacy we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.